Solidarity, a podcast where we draw connections between power, place, and health, and discuss how our lives, our fates, are all interconnected. Here are your hosts, Erica Burrell-Girardi and Beth Silver. Hi there, and welcome to the sixth and final episode of our mini-series on the racial wealth gap. I'm your host, Beth Silver, here with my co-host, Erica Burrows-Girardi. Hi, Erica. How are you? Hi, Beth. I'm doing great. I'm excited for the final episode of this series, but if I'm honest, a little sad, too. I've learned so much through these conversations. How are you feeling about it, Beth? I have to say, I'm stunned by the gravity of it all. And at the same time, I'm hopeful. There are proven solutions to closing this insidious inequity, the racial wealth gap. We think of it sometimes as a divide between white and black Americans, and for good reason. But the wealth disparities impact communities across the country and many people of color. So true. This is an issue for all of us. And on that note, I think we've got the perfect way to finish this series. The Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative is currently working on so many of the things that we've been talking about in this podcast. In this episode, we're going to wrap up our series on the racial wealth gap with a conversation with Latresa McLaughorn Ryan. She's the executive director of the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative. The initiative reimagines economic realities in communities of color through community wealth building strategies that leverage ideas, people, and capital. Atlanta is an example of how looks can be deceiving. Some people think that Atlanta is America's success story in terms of Black prosperity. But in reality, according to the folks at the initiative, almost 70% of Black families in Atlanta are asset poor. That's compared with only 22% of white families. And the median household income for white people in Atlanta is three times higher than for Black people. And although Atlanta boasts a good number of Black-owned businesses, the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative also reports that white-owned companies make 10 times the revenue of Black-owned companies. I think that's why Atlanta is such a good place to focus on as we wrap up this series, Beth. The problems are pronounced, but they're being addressed. That makes me think of the data spotlight on children living in poverty that we did last year at County Health Rankings. If you look at Fulton County, where most of Atlanta is located, 22% of children live in poverty, which is above the national average of 17%. But if you break it down by race, More than 33% of Black children in Fulton County live in poverty, while only 4% of white children do. That is shocking. That is shocking, Beth. And as a Southerner, the first question that comes to mind when I hear these awful statistics is, is this a Southern problem? But the data show us it's not. It's an American problem. It's something you find across the country. That's why I'm so excited to introduce our guests. The Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative solutions are focused on Atlanta, but they are generating a roadmap for so many diverse communities. With that, please help me welcome Latresa McLaughlin Ryan. Hi, Latresa. How are you today? Very good. Hi, Erica. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And I want to start with this question that we've been asking all of our guests. On In Solidarity, we center the theme around social solidarity. So what does social solidarity mean to you and how does it influence the work that you do? 
Um, to me, social solidarity is is really focused on um, bringing together the the right partners, the right voices, providing agency uh, to those voices and resources, so that we can all collectively move our work forward. So that we could collectively address the social issues that we have um, dedicated ourselves to addressing. Um, in Atlanta, specifically, Atlanta is. Uh, you know, has the narrative and, and certainly the reputation for being the black Mecca, but Atlanta is also the, the you know, number two in income inequality, just behind San Juan, Puerto Rico. And um, Atlanta is always and has been for several years towards the bottom of the list for economic mobility. So while Atlanta is a bustling economy um, with, with so much to offer, uh, a lot of our residents or don't get an opportunity to share in that prosperity. And so for us and for me, uh, the theme around social solidarity is really at the core of our work. It's it's movement building is, is one of our, our core um, pillars of our theory of change. And we have found is the most effective way to address issues centered around racial wealth equity. Mm -hmm. Lou, Teresa, you mentioned uh, the income inequality. Is that is that holding true for wealth uh, building as well? It is. It is. And so, for example, um, for Black families, uh, the the average well, well, you mentioned wealth specifically. So, um, in Atlanta, for example, let's just take our Black business owners. Mm -hmm. um, the average uh, value of a Black business in Atlanta is fifty eight thousand dollars, compared to six hundred fifty eight thousand dollars for a white wow, family wow. or a white business owner. And so, it, it these disparities exist across the board, whether it be income, wealth assets and um, some of what we're talking about today around disparities around um, health and education and intersectionality mm -hmm. of all of those pieces. Yeah. Can you tell us, let me just back up a minute here. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Atlanta Wealth Initiative is and how it came about, how it started? Sure, sure. Uh, the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative is a nonprofit intermediary organization focused on closing the racial wealth gap. And we do that by leveraging national and international best practices, sharing those practices broadly throughout our ecosystem, but particularly with our community of practice, which is about 50 nonprofit government, uh, quasi-government and philanthropic organizations that really help ground our work, uh, but also um, help inform the work ahead and in the the community of practice and going back to your question around social solidarity, um, that piece of our work is so critical because our community of practice um, actually set out the course to determine what AWBI would become and how we would show up in community and quite frankly, what they needed to move the work forward. And as an intermediary, this really core to what we do. We also focus on our strategic investments. And so we provide grants to nonprofits uh, to support capacity building, as well as grants to support innovative prototypes. Often um, we emphasize that the, the, the best solutions often come from those who are on the ground actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. And those solutions are usually informed by um, their day-to-day -day interactions with the people that we're, we're trying to help. And so they have a, a, a great lens on what will actually be effective and impactful. And so their voices and the work that they determine um, is needed is really important to invest in and often with philanthropy um, because those ideas are, are new or in some cases radical. Um, they 
traditional philanthropy may be less inclined to support that work, but AWBI is here to um, support support proof of concepts, create prototypes, co-design, um, because for us, it's just as important to know what doesn't work as what does work. Um, particularly in for our work around closing the racial wealth gap where uh, left unchecked will take more than 200, 200 years to address. Wow. And so it's really important to, to test and determine what will work. And just finally, I would say for our work is centered on um, providing capital. So we provide uh, grants and loans and innovative financial products to small businesses and um, Black-owned small businesses. Wow. wow. I mean, it seems like you're such a, a valuable resource for businesses there. Can you just give us a couple examples of what that capacity building support um, that you mentioned, what does that entail? Capacity building is really our capacity building funding is focused on making sure that uh, we serve as a multiplier for that work and can ensure that their work grows and they have an opportunity to um, make the impact not just in their 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 neighborhood but perhaps implementing those um, those strategies across the region and for those organizations um, they tip tend to also be really dedicated to the work and they're authentic in their approach. And as a result, there can be a tendency to want to pour out all resources versus investing it in the infrastructure. And so what we do, for example, acting as a partner, we, we certainly provide funding, but we also say what you, you know, let's take uh, Kelly Rollins, who's the head of um, the connect here, a really important organization in Atlanta. Um, but Kiomi is a trusted member of the community. We can bring, we, you know, she's brought in experts from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And at the end of the meeting, um, one of the, the elder residents said, he sounded really smart, but should we be listening to him? What should we do? And that type of um, um, person needs to ensure, we need to ensure that she has the capacity to grow her vision. And we act as a partner to say, I know you wanted to raise money for this new program, but you really need more staff. Can we give you a grant for four new staff members instead, turn those volunteers into paid staff so that we can free you up a little bit so that you can, can move forward with the strategic vision that you have for your organization. That's such a nice example um, of how you're actually supporting infrastructure and business. We did, sometimes that's where minority businesses struggle to get that that infrastructure support. Um, what about some uh, another success story, if you will, that showcased the power of what a community can accomplish when the collective mindset is more we than me? So I think another piece there, um, going back again to, to our nonprofit capacity building um, for our business support organizations, we one example is um, is in response to, to the pandemic. Um, we were, were called on the weekend before things started to shut down here in Atlanta, where a lot of our organizations were saying, hey, we have businesses that are worried. They've lost their uh you know, a big conference or the Final Four um, has been rescheduled and they that was their primary revenue for the year. Uh, we have to get our businesses help. And during that weekend, we convened other um, organizations to talk about, well, what do we need and what resources, what are we learning from other cities? Um, we spoke to 
uh, leaders in Seattle and New York who had been impacted earlier than we had just to get some insight on you know, what they've learned in the process. And that was all by Sunday night. So we were then able to all come together and determine that there were some organizations, smaller organizations, um, doing surveys for their participants who, who they work with. And AWI stepped in and said, hey, let, let us step in and gather this data so that you can focus on what you do best, which is helping um, the, the folks that you serve. And so we uh, developed, uh, quickly developed a survey. We uh, sent that out weekly for that, that first week in, in um, from March until the first week of April to gather as best we could real-time data about what the needs were. And that was critical because in that time, we were also advising capital providers and banks and CDFIs um, and others who at the time were um, thinking, well, the government is gonna come up with a solution. We'll just wait and see what funding they provided. And from that survey, we knew that a lot of our Black-owned businesses we're not going to be able to survive more than two to three weeks without revenue. Wow. And so there was a sense of urgency that we were able to create and collectively come together to determine what resources were available, uh, understand, and, and we were able to help ensure these organizations did not um, work in silos because for mm-hmm. this size problem, we really have to leverage each other. And um, and so we were able to coordinate a response both from uh, the city level to grassroots organizations to support as many businesses as quickly as possible to share uh, resources that were coming online daily uh, to provide grants and loans ourselves uh, while we were waiting for others and advising others uh, with more resources on um, like philanthropy in the city that's just an example of kind of the we aspect of our work and AWBI serves to um, help coordinate that, that, uh, that, that response um, in, in the, the our response to COVID was one of those examples. Wow. You know, I, I'm just so impressed with your agility. It's, you know, it's not just the, the we that you're talking about, but you, you move so fast and that's um, so important, obviously during COVID and, and, and really impressive. You, you are already touching on this in in this interview, but you operate from a community wealth building model. What exactly is that model and how does it work? Yes, all of our strategies are centered in community wealth building. And, um, you know, I like to say community wealth building isn't new or radical. There was a time um, in our society where we um, you know, if our neighbor was hungry, we knew it and we left them a plate on their door and, and did so with a way that they could keep their dignity. There was a time where, and it wasn't charity, it was just something that you were supposed to do. There was a time where uh, if, if, a, if a, you know, a kid got in trouble and um, needed to be occupied, the local shopkeeper might give them a job after school. Yeah. Uh, and, and there was a time where we had a sense of community uh, before a very well-funded effort around free market capitalism, which centers individualistic um, growth and security kind of took hold. And so with that, and I won't get into neoliberalism, but with that um, community wealth building, at least the way that we implement it, um, hopes to do the the opposite where uh, we believe in building wealth in a way that um, doesn't just extract from community to build individual wealth, but has a responsibility mm-hmm. to community, to sustain community, uh, to support community and assure the community as a whole thrives. Uh, and so uh, our strategies range from um, 
business enterprise development, which is what I've kind of touched on today, but also includes anchor collaboratives, ecological resilience, uh, workforce development. Um, it also includes uh, uh, place-based initiatives uh, around centering neighborhoods and, and creating um, really safe neighborhoods. It includes equitable land use and equitable um, land development. And so of our seven strategies, uh, and these six of these strategies actually or, uh, originated with the Democracy Collaborative, which is one of our partners. Mm-hmm. But in doing this work um, in 2020, centered on Black people, we observed that regardless of wealth level or success level, um, there was a need to focus on uh, wellness. Mm-hmm. And the impact that structural racism has had on Black people's mental and physical health. And I know we'll dive into that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But with that, we added that as one of our strategies, because until we can um, address any uh, burdens related to that, we, uh, you know, Black people can't fully um, achieve their their full excellence in, in our society. Uh, the other thing I'll just quickly note is important to our work around community wealth building is that we hope to redefine wealth. So wealth isn't just uh, assets. Of course, it is financial assets, but it's also um, social capital. It's intellectual capital. It is... Um, uh, this level of connectivity and cap- capital, various forms of capital that, uh, and wellness, as I mentioned, but it's it's a, a collection of uh, types of capital that really ultimately allow a person uh, to have agency and control over his life and the path of, of his or her family um, and ultimately to be free. And so um, we focus on wealth and that might happen regardless of income level that might happen if they never actually acquire an asset of their own. But there's a way to create a a environment of wealth for people in Atlanta that we have as a collective can implement to ensure there's a wholeness and wellness in a thriving community as a whole. Yeah. You know, one, what a wonderful way to show how community wealth building so aligns with this idea of social solidarity. So, mm-hmm. you know, Atlanta is an interesting place to to be doing this work. And especially since it is considered a success story for many Black Americans, like you said, the uh, the Mecca. But the, the wealth gap, as you um, mentioned um, earlier, is as insidious here as any place. So and then we're also familiar with the city's um, history with enslaved people and racism. But what are some specific historical drivers of the racial wealth gap that Atlanta faces today? So I'll I'll take it back, for example, to um, uh, the race riots that we had um, in 1906 and how that impacted um, Black people. And that has happened all over the country, right? Um, It happened, but it's not just that it happened. It instills a level of fear Mm. in people to not even try to to move forward, right? And so that is um, an example of of some of the history that is is interwoven into the development of Atlanta. you know, we we might have have had a gone with the wind right moment here, but there were it was also some very um, violent tactics that were put mm-hmm. into place that impacted um, Black people's 
ability to build wealth. And for some families, that trauma lasts for generations Mm -hmm. and that they are taught to not even try. Right. So we have that kind of historical context. Um, We have decisions that were made, for example, around um, I-20 as the city was becoming a bit more diverse and putting um, Highway I-20 right through the black community. And that is served as a segregator for the city that still impacts our city. Um, The majority of Black people in Atlanta still live in South Atlanta. And that's significant in that uh, the higher paying jobs, uh, amenities, they tend to be in North Atlanta and North Fulton. And so uh, that reinvestment uh, or that investment has not been made in communities where Black people live. And the fact that Black people live there is not a coincidence. Uh, So those um, drivers are a piece of that. And then there are... Um, a little more recent uh, policy. So around the time, and we're still researching this, um, but what so far what we have narrowed down is around the time of the Olympics is where there were shifts here. And during that time, Atlanta uh, shifted its policies to focus more on bringing in big business, large corporations, Fortune 500 um, companies, and really um, positioning itself um, as an international city. Mm-hmm. And we had great economic growth during that time um, and since. And that's part of the reason why, for example, in Atlanta, um, the average income for the median family income for a, a white family is $84,000, whereas the national median income for a white family is around $60,000. Mm-hmm. Um, Similarly, the median um, family income for a Black family uh, nationally is thirty around $35,000, but in Atlanta, it's, it's $28,000. Oh, so yeah, white people in Atlanta are doing very well. They're taking advantage of all of these wonderful opportunities we have here, but Black people haven't had an opportunity um, or the same pathway or, or, quite frankly, the intentionality that we need to put into place to ensure mm-hmm. that uh, a pathway to share prosperity is equitably uh, created. Wow. You know, you mentioned um, earlier some of the mental health impacts, but what are some of the other ways that you see the racial wealth gap affecting the health of Black Atlantans? Well, I know you all would know this better than anyone in terms of kind of the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, this year, part of our, our strategic plan is to really dive into that and to highlight and raise awareness of that connectivity and intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really, um, other ways that it, it shows itself, so I, I mentioned kind of kind of highlighting the, the framework of Atlanta where resources and amenities are, um, but that also extends to access to healthcare, access mm-hmm. to healthcare centers. We have neighborhoods where for, you know, 10 miles, there is no clinic, there is no pharmacy. Wow. People have to take two buses to get to a grocery store. Um, there are food deserts, there are, uh, there, so that that's one, one way. The racial wealth gap also impacts Uh, our education system and um, how and who receives a quality education, which then impacts their ability to build a life. Uh, And not the only determinant. I mean, we know nationally that uh, college, well, high school educated white people have a large percentage of wealth 
than college-educated Black people. So we know that that's not the only determinant, but we also know that it is a driver for civility and 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 our basic health needs and access to health care and access to quality food and um, options and that freedom and control that I mentioned earlier when we talk about wealth. So those are some of that. Yeah. I'm curious about how your work is being received in, in, in Atlanta. Like, is there any pushback? And are there lessons learned from Atlanta's example as we think about eliminating the, the racial wealth gap across the country? So I will say, first of all, no, we haven't had any pushback. Um, but that's not, there are a couple of factors there. First of all, a city that um, I like to say about Atlanta, we're, we're known as a Black Mecca. And so that's a, a, a huge benefit that we can build on. Now we just have to make it um, a reality, right? And a lot of cities don't have that benefit in history to work from. Um, and the kind of political structure that has allowed for that um, willingness to, to make it so. Um, we, But what I believe has been the biggest driver uh, for what is essentially uh, you know, the consensus building that went into what AWBI would be is that our board before hiring staff even uh, spent 18 months convening stakeholders to talk about the work that they were doing around racial wealth equity, to talk about um, what they were seeing in community, to talk about uh, what resources were available and what gaps existed and to come to them and determine what they wanted and needed to move that work forward. And those stakeholders were, because uh, we believe that that to do this work effectively, um, it requires all of us working together at the same time, grassroots, grass tops organizations, corporations, government, philanthropy, all working together towards the same goal. And we really began our work centered on conversations. Now that we're doing the work, it's just a matter of doing the work, right? <laughs> and, the, and the time to do it and the, the dollars and capital that are required. And there, there's still a lot that needs to happen around changing hearts and minds mm -hmm. to move with urgency, to dedicate specific types of resources, for example, for our Black-owned businesses um, and to shift policies and culture. But we just haven't had the pushback that I believe we would have had had we just popped up yeah. um, as an organization. And one thing I'll add also, we also were well-funded early on. So the Kellogg Foundation and the Candida Fund made a very strong multi-year um, million dollar investment into AWPI. So that gave us the space to explore, to gather data, to have conversations uh, and to say the thing that needs to be said transparently about what needed to shift mm -hmm. um, without being guided by any new funding resources that might drive that conversation in a way that isn't backed by actual data and community um, community voice. Yeah, I, I love the hearts and minds. And I, I think that is uh Absolutely right on. What will what will it take for other communities to follow your lead? And is there the political will? Yes, I think so. We've been fortunate. We're we're working with um, and, and in conversation with cities, various cities across the country. Some who are much further along than Atlanta is on community wealth building strategies. But the the, the what we've seen and, and been told is that the value. Um, of, of an AWBI is we're a hub and we wake up every day focused on addressing the racial wealth gap and pulling together the right pieces of the puzzle to 
make that uh, a reality. And we are not uh, influenced by any other goals or agenda. And so that will look differently in every city is is also what I like to emphasize. And so for other um, areas, I just encourage the first step around um, making sure there's an understanding of the landscape and developing and, and then gathering the data and research to determine what is the current state. And that's a lesson learned we've had, right? Um, there isn't a lot of updated data about Black people in Atlanta. So we have had to create the data sets and pull together the, the focus groups and um, do the surveys. And that requires deep investment, but it's required to be able to determine what you should be doing versus just doing and not being able to track whether or not um, you're making the shifts that you want to make. But more importantly, um, not knowing for sure if the strategies that you're implementing are actually addressing the root causes of the disparities. Mm -hmm. So much of the racial wealth gap started with and continues to be because of the federal government's actions. You're obviously doing great work at the local level. You've um, explained how we have to be locally focused. But is this a problem that should be addressed at the federal level? And do you even think it can be? I absolutely think that it can and should be um, addressed at the federal level. Um, um, Dr. William Darity notes that mm-hmm. it's going to take $10 trillion for us to build Black wealth to the level of white wealth. So none of us can do this alone. It's going to uh, require various types of, quite frankly, reparations working at the mm-hmm. same time to build a network of equitable solutions to address that. And I think our federal government is well positioned to do that um, because philanthropy alone is not going to be able to do it. Um, local governments are not going to be able to do it. Um, none of us are able to do it. Even federal government is not going to be able to do it alone. Yeah, that holistic approach. You know, it, it's so complex and so many, yes. so many layers. So anyway, thank you so much, Latresa. I, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on the podcast for um, all of these explanations and, and sharing your experience in Atlanta. We really appreciate it. Um, and it was a lot of fun to be able to talk to you. Thank you. It's well. My pleasure. I'm happy uh, to join you all today. Wow, what a great conversation with Latresa. You know, something that she brought up that Professor William Darity at Duke said that it would take $10 trillion to fully close the racial wealth gap. Yeah, that that number is staggering. But I think between this conversation and our previous episodes with Dr. Perry and our colleague Michael, I'm encouraged. There are a lot of ideas. And I really like what Latresa said. She said that The initiative started their work with community conversations, really getting engaged with the community, learning about the community. And that's where the backdrop for this whole podcast, Social Solidarity, comes into play. The racial wealth gap problem is so immense that we can only begin to fix it if we tackle it together. Our fates are intertwined. It makes me think about our first interview with Donald Cohen. In his book, he wrote, quote, We can choose to craft policies and make public investments that acknowledge and reinforce our linked fates and knock down structures of exclusion, segregation, and stratification. That's the starting point for a pro-public future. 
a great excerpt. It touches on so many of the themes of this podcast, our linked fates and knocking down structures of exclusion. Just a quick shout out to our colleagues at County Health Rankings and Roadmaps, Dr. Christine Muganda and Michael Stevenson. Christine and Michael helped us put together this podcast and served as guests on two of the episodes. And a thank you to our executive producer, Tommy Jaime, the man behind securing all of our incredible guests and putting everything together. Thank you, Tommy. And a big thank you to my friend and colleague, my co-host, Erica. The two of us have been working on the idea for this podcast for nearly a year now, and I'm so happy we're sitting here together. We pulled it off, Erica. Yes, we did. So thank you to you as well, Bev. And I also want to offer my thanks to Christine, Michael, and Tommy, because we've all had so much fun working together. And a huge thank you to our guests, to our listeners, and to our funder, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. This has been great. I am genuinely hopeful about something that can be pretty depressing at times. And I'm inspired. I hope it has inspired you, our listeners, as well. There's life beyond this miniseries. In Solidarity, we'll continue to produce podcasts and we'll tackle another topic that impacts health just as we did with the racial wealth gap. If you have any ideas, a subject you'd like us to explore, please reach out through countyhealthrankings.org. In the meantime, we hope you'll keep an eye or an ear out for our next miniseries this fall. And until then, I'm Beth. And I'm Erica. And we're in solidarity, connecting power, place, and health. Now it's your turn to join the conversation. Head over to our podcast page on countyhealthrankings.org and share your thoughts with us. The question for this episode is, what would community wealth building strategies like the ones used by the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative look like in your community? In Solidarity is a production of County Health Rankings and Roadmaps from the University of Wisconsin with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Views expressed by guests of In Solidarity are their own. Their appearance on In Solidarity does not imply County Health Rankings and Roadmaps endorsement. To learn more about our guests' work, to discover additional resources on the topics we've discussed, or to find out how healthy your community is, visit us at countyhealthrankings.org.